Hi everyone, I'm Sylvain Berthelot and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Emily Epstein and we'll be talking about the BCRA mutation. Hi Emily, how are you today? Hi, I'm well, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, it's the second time we were on a podcast together, so uh, I appreciate you coming back. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so as you know, and as uh, our listeners may know, I like to start with a song. I love the way music impacts people. Uh, so I asked you to uh, send me a, a song. Uh, would you like to share what song you chose? Sure. So um, a song that is very, very close to my heart is called uh, Two for the Road. It's from a movie called Two for the Road, um, which if you haven't seen it, see it. It's with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. Um, and the score is by Henry Mancini, who probably a lot of people know he wrote the Pink Panther theme. So he also wrote this, you know, um, lovely song called Two for the Road, which um, has just been a part of my life. My my mother loved that movie. My parents loved the song. Um, and then I also sang it to my husband at my at my wedding. It's just a really wonderful song about relationships, about marriage. Um, it's really a beautiful, beautiful piece. Yeah. And so I listened to the song before the, the show and especially the version you sent is is very powerful. It's just piano and voice, but the, the power that comes out of this song is really, really nice. I really loved it. Thank you. Yeah. I think I sent you the one, the actual one I sang at my wedding. It was it was poor quality because it was from a video, but I had found it when I was looking for for you, um, which I hadn't heard in, in, you know, 15, 16 years. So it was, it was good to, to go back and listen to it. Well, nice. A, a, a song close to your heart, I like that. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, BCRA mutation. Um, and before we go into what it is, um, I'd love to, to talk about how you discovered that you have the mutation yourself. Yes, um, I discovered it um, in a very... Um, chance sort of way. Uh, I'm going to set a disclaimer that I do not recommend that everybody, anybody use um, how I find out as a tool to find out for themselves. Uh, but I'm very lucky I found out this way. Um, I found out through 23andMe. Um, my father passed away in 2010. He was adopted and he had died of uh, leukemia, very sudden onset leukemia. He had a stem cell transplant and it failed. But leukemia is not BRCA-related. It's it's not really hereditary, so far as they know. Um, and, you know, my dad was adopted in 1952 on what's called, um, I guess, sort of the gray market. I don't know what the statute of limitations are, so I don't want to get anyone in, in trouble. Um, but in 1952, my my grandparents were turned down from adop for adoption. So when they adopted him, there were no records uh, that, that came with him. Um, I think it was from another doctor or, or something, a doctor and a nurse. I don't know the exact story. 
but uh, we had a feeling that my dad was Jewish and I just wanted to know my heritage. I've got red hair, I've got blue eyes. I've always felt really Jewish. Um, had a daughter when I did this, she was about, you know, maybe two or three at the time. Um, you know, we had done a bunch of the genetic tests when I was pregnant, the Ashkenazi Jewish panel. Uh, but I had an unknown family history, which I never really factored in. Uh, so I, I did 23andMe. I got all the results back. Um, I had not added the health. I found out I was, I think, 99.4% Ashkenazi Jewish, mostly Eastern European, uh, from Poland, Austria, pretty much exactly what I thought, filled in a nice picture. Um, now this is 2016, maybe. Uh, and at that time, Braca had, um, been removed from 23andMe. Uh, they were very concerned with uh, letting out, with diagnosing people with uh, genetic mutations like that when they didn't have enough information on what to do with them. Uh, they were worried, you know, people were going to take drastic measures once they found out. And it, it wasn't really, it's not a diagnostic tool. It wasn't an approved diagnostic tool. Yeah. Anyway, uh, about a year later, a friend of mine convinced me to add the the health to it, mostly just for fun. You know, are you lactose intolerant? Are you, you know, uh, do you have a, a cleft chin? All the, the genetic stuff that I, I find really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I added it, you know, are you a good sleeper? Um, and then on uh, April 20th, 2000. And uh, 18, I believe, um, I was out. It was about two in the morning and I got a, um, a notification on 23andMe that said, you have a new genetic test result. And they had added the BRCA back and I, I just hadn't really given it a second thought. And it said, you know, we have a new test result for the BRCA mutation. Would you like to see your results? And now it's pretty much, you know, the the consent you have to click through. Do you want to see your results? Yes, I do. Yes. Are you sure? Yes, I'm absolutely sure. Yes. Okay. Just, just tell me. Um, and then it said you are positive for one of the BRCA2 genetic variants. And I thought, oh, well, that, that's not good. But also that's probably not right. It's just, you know, a direct-to-consumer test. Who knows? So I sort of back-pocketed it for a little while. And did you then, know? Did you know what it was at the time? I did. I did. You know, I had followed the story. Uh, Angelina Jolie um, had sort of brought it to the forefront, um, and it just wasn't. But but back then, it wasn't something. You know, it was something that is thought to happen to people that have, you know, on their mother's side, a lot of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. That's what I sort of knew about it. You know, Angelina Jolie. Um, that's what it was, yeah. and. I had never thought, hey, you know, you get genes from both sides, your mom's side and your dad's side. I think it's a lot of, a lot of, it's something a lot of people never think about. Um, and so I then, of course, went to my uh, doctor, my provider, and told them. And it was about a six-week waiting period. They had to find a genetic test. We'd used one called Invitae, didn't know if insurance was going to cover it, waited, and then confirmed that I had the genetic mutation. Um, and so that's, that's how I found out. Wow. So in a way, it's a, it's a look, I think that's what you said by chance. So lucky that you did that, that you added this, this health 
component to it as well. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that that must have like changed your world, really. Completely. I mean, I was 37 years old, um, so about three years before I would have had my first mammogram. You know, we get them at at 40 pretty consistently, unless you have a high risk or a history of of family cancer. Um, and I was just skyrocketed to, as I had been incredibly healthy for most of my life. Um, I didn't break a bone. I rarely got, I, I didn't, I don't think I ever got stung by a bee until I was pregnant. I had some complications when I was pregnant. I had not even had an IV in my arm. So the fact that now I am going to doctors, I hadn't, I had gotten blood drawn maybe once or twice before I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So uh, now, you know, they're giving me a stack of papers. Uh, here's the GI doctor. Here's the breast surgeon. Here's the plastic surgeon. Go for this mammogram. Go for this MRI. And then, you know, every week and they are finding things. Um, I had something called atypical ductal hyperplasia, which um, is a precancerous condition um, that basically is, puts you at high, everything I had that was, you know, dense breast tissue, anything that could lead to high risk, I, I had. And I had to have about two or three biopsies. Uh, another reason I was extremely lucky is that they found uh, where they biopsied was sort of in the middle of my chest, very close to the, the breastbone. And it was not something that had it progressed to a lump I would have necessarily felt myself. They couldn't even uh, easily get to it in a biopsy. They had to try while I was in the MRI machine. They had to try lying down. Then they put me in a mammogram machine and I was upside down, you know, on my back. Um, so was a lot of waiting, a lot of anxiety and waiting. And, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a, um, a doer. I'm a problem solver. And so when I knew that, you know, preventative double mastectomy was sort of on the table. And that was the way that I, it was, it was between that for, for the breast cancer, between that and sort of, you know, every six months surveillance. And because I had had three biopsies, I had gone back so many times. I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this every six months. So I had the preventative double mastectomy. I found it in April. I was in the OR in September, that following September. Um, oh, wow. That, that's, that's quite yeah. quick. Yeah, I know. You know I know. It seems like a, like it must have been, felt like a long time for you, but then it, it is still quite quick between discovering that and making that decision. How how did you make that decision? You know, I um, I don't. You know, a lot of people say you're you're so brave. That must have been so difficult for me. It was just I looked at the data and it seemed like a smart decision to make. Um, and it was for me. Everybody makes their own decisions. I was fortunate enough that I had one daughter. Um, I had pretty much, we, my husband and I had only wanted to have one one child. So, you know, as far as we thought until we decided we didn't and wanted one more. And that never really happened. I had breastfed her. Um, and, you know, I I think of it this way, that if you're at the airport and you're waiting for your flight and someone says, you know, this flight has an 80% chance of crashing. But if you, 
you know, come back in a little bit. This may disrupt your life. You may miss a meeting. You may not get to where you're going. If you come back, we have a 99% chance of landing. What would you do? Put in, put in that context that, yeah, I, I completely get how you you would make a decision like this and actually like the decision might might be easier to make than what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of people, yes, you, once you know about these things, you can um, do surveillance, you can catch something early. But even if you catch something early when you have the, the BRCA gene, you're going to probably end up in that double mastectomy. So I wasn't, I didn't want to wait. I just wanted to get it over with. And, you know, I had, there were a lot of other things that, you know, ovarian cancer comes with uh, the BRCA mutation, uh, risk of pancreatic cancer, risk of um, melanoma. So there's a lot of stuff to keep track of. So this was just the first little, um, you know, my my first big thing on this on this long sort of marathon that is living with the BRCA genetic mutation. Yeah, so so you went through through this first surgery, um, but if I'm not wrong, you've had more since. So, would you would you like to take us through that? Sure. Yes. So I had the first surgery in September of, uh, I believe it was 2018. Um, I had the breast surgery in two parts. Um, uh, so first, so I. I I was lucky enough, I have a really wonderful plastic surgeon who was sort of ahead of the curve. They used to put implants under the pectoral muscle, and now they're able to put them over the muscle um, in like a dermis sling. Uh, so I had that. You get these things called uh, every... Now I'm going to say this again. This It's it's not a one size fits all. So every single person's um, experience in a... Uh, mastectomy or any kind of reconstruction is very different and very personal um, in terms of how you want to do it, in terms of what you want to keep, in terms of how, you know, some people don't want to reconstruct. Some people don't save their nipples or they can't. Uh, you know, these are all really personal choices. So the way that I went was I did a nipple, what's called a nipple sparing, skin sparing, double mastectomy. Um, they uh, to the incision underneath and take us out as much breast tissue as they can replace it with expanders, which are these really hard, uh, saline filled, uh, sacks that every couple of weeks, every week they fill and expand. They fill it with water. You have like a little port on the side. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, and part of that is because I had, uh, the, the dermis. So it was sort of stretching that out to fit with my skin on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. You know, sometimes it's to figure out cosmetically, you know, what size you want to be, what's going to fit. Um, you know, some people can go direct to implant. There's just a, a number of different ways. And then I had that for about two months, um, three months. And then in November, I had those taken out and implants put in. Then. Um, that was done once I recovered from, from those surgeries. Um, my plan was to continue just with surveillance for my ovaries. Um, 
which is a uh, every six months a CA125 blood test, um, which is a, a marker if it's elevated, you could have um, ovarian cancer and a transvaginal ultrasound. The thing is, is that a lot of these tests just help us feel better, like we're doing something. But your CA125 isn't always elevated if you have ovarian cancer. And a transvaginal ultrasound isn't always going to pick up something. And the symptoms of ovarian cancer, as a female, are bloating and back pain, pretty much. So, you know, if you're a female, you're going to get that at least at least once a month. If yeah. you're a female with, you know, any sort of young child or you're stressed, you're gonna it you're gonna get that a lot. Um, so. It and just, I guess I guess you overthink any little back pain that you have. Anything, yeah. anything, and then you know if I have wonderful, wonderful providers, and you know, so I call them and they and I say, yeah, I'm a little nervous about this. They say, well, come in, schedule, schedule the MRI, schedule this. You know, I stub my toe and I'm in, I'm in that machine pretty much. So after about, my plan was to do the surveillance route until forty. Um, there's a lot of studies that I was reading about, they believe that, uh, ovarian cancer starts in the fallopian tubes. So there are some studies going on where they are just removing fallopian tubes so women can, can keep their ovaries. Um, keep in mind that as a woman premenopausal, when you remove your ovaries, you're removing your estrogen. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, whereas the, the mastectomy is very, um, exterior. You know, there are a lot of things that go on internally and mentally with it, but um, it's it's very much external. The ovaries is internal and, and it's a tiny surgery. It's a laparoscopic surgery done by, you know, a lot of times it's done by a da Vinci robot. And the impact that it has on your body is astounding because you lose all of your estrogen. Um, and then again, the plan that you make after that is, is very personal, depending on if you've had the mastectomy, if you've had cancer, depending on whether you can have hormone replacement. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I just decided to do that. Um, I had that done in, let's see, I think October of 2019. So right before 2020, um, about the time that I was, you know, like I'm done with my surgeries. I am, you know, recovered. And the the pandemic hit. Um, and uh, in May of 2020, no, 2021. I think it was 2021. Actually, May of 2021, I had found um, like a couple of lumps in my in my left breast. And while it is a the the odds are low that uh, lower than than an average female that I'll develop breast cancer. It's about eight to twelve in an average female, and now that I've had the mastectomy, it's one to three. But it's not nothing. So you know, I I found something. It was um, lymph nodes that were that were floating, and then um, I had had uh, something had happened. They thought maybe an implant had ruptured on my left side. Um, so I had that, it hadn't, but it had, something had happened. So I had that replaced. So that was my fourth surgery, um, 
with a fat graft. Oh, and when I had the the oophorectomy, um, I got a fat graft as well, which they take uh, donor fat from your abdomen to fill in um, on top because you there are a lot of gaps, there are ripples, there are hard oh, okay. things. Um, and then just recently, this past December, um, I had another fat graft because I was having some pain in my left side. Um, so the fat sort of fills in and makes it a little, a little more even. Um, I'm again, really fortunate enough that if I do have pain, I, I made a promise to myself that I would never let myself be unhappy with how I looked because of this or let myself be in any pain I didn't need to be in. So, um, I have had five surgeries and that's, you know, where I am, where I am now. Uh, that that's well. First of all, it, like I find that you're very brave to have gone through all this, um, to have made those decisions. Um, but I find it incredible that nowadays we can do this. The fact that you you discovered this mutation and you are able to take control in a way of what you do, what you don't do to reduce the risk of uh, getting cancer, which is something we, we wouldn't have been able to do 10 or 15 years ago. So that that's something that makes me very hopeful in a way. Uh, but then listening to what you've been through, it's still a very tough journey. I don't know if you agree with that term tough. It is. It is. Um, you know, it's, it's a marathon. Um, but I, I will say that as I, um, have gotten more into advocacy and social work, I, am, you know, I'm not necessarily lucky to have a BRCA genetic mutation, but I am lucky to have found it and lucky to be into a, in a position where I could do something about it. Um, if you don't have the right insurance or if you don't have a doctor that's knowledgeable or, you know, really you don't, there they would not have necessarily had me take a test because my father was adopted. Um, if you don't, have that, you're not going to have access to what I had access to. I'm hoping it becomes more standard that sort of precision uh, medicine and individualized care and genetic testing becomes really more accessible and more standard to people. Um, they used to think, I think that, um, I, I don't know the exact stats, um, but let's just say it's a lot larger of a number than they thought of the percentage of cancers that are hereditary. And that's because it was never a number they could find. They could test when you when you have cancer, they could say, okay, is it is it hereditary? Let's let's test it. But there are so many people that are walking around with not only uh, variants that we've studied, that people have discovered, but variants that have not been discovered yet. Um, so you could have, you know, a lot of people say, well, I have a family of history. It's so strange that I don't have a mutation or I don't have a marker and people probably do. Maybe it just hasn't been found yet. Yeah. Um, 
And another thing, but, but on the side of everything being amazing in terms of medicine, I, I sort of, because I'm such a data nerd, really sort of geek out on my own treatment. Um, I, I joke that if they could, like when you go to a, um, an amusement park and they take a picture of you coming down the roller coaster and you're like, spend the $50 for that one picture because it's hilarious, right? <laughs> the, the most expensive picture in the world, yeah. Right. <laughs> if they had a video of my surgeries, I would, I would buy it. Really? I am so fascinated by my own care and by how everything gets done. Um, and then also in terms of how, how far medicine is coming, my, my daughter is eight. She just turned eight. She's a 50% chance of inheriting my mutation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not something that uh, I'm going to test until she's 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't worry about that because I see where they've come in the past 10 years, mm-hmm. that to see where they're going 10 years from now, you know, even if she has to go through what I went through, it's okay. She'll have the knowledge and be armed with the, 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 you know, information she needs to make the decisions that are best for her. But in 10 years, the, the uh, decisions that she has are going to be, there's going to be so many more, um, so many more avenues she can take, I think. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, we're both in the in the industry, <laughs> so so we'll see. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, before others. Uh, uh, but at least what's sure is that you've set an incredible example for her. Thank you. Um. So, well, thank you for sharing. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, like what it has led you to to do like professionally because. Your experience has meant that you've uh, you've lived uh, the healthcare system, and that's made you realize that not everything is perfect in the healthcare system. Which, unfortunately, a lot of people know, but you're acting upon that. So, would you like to share a bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. I have learned that um, preventative care saves lives. Uh, but it is very, very hard sometimes to get preventative care um, in terms of, you know, I now have to get MRIs for my abdomen, for my pancreas. And it's really hard for a seemingly healthy 40-year-old woman to get an MRI for her abdomen. Um, so it's it's always a little bit of a fight. Um, but one of the things I noticed is that through everything I've been through, um, there was really no uh, no psychosocial or mental health support in in anything. Um, I'm completing my MSW. I'm a big advocate for for mental health, and and um, you know I'm in the the genetic counselor and New York Presbyterian again a, a top top hospital. They're giving me a stack of papers with referrals to, you know, the, you know, first and foremost BACA researcher in, you know, almost anywhere as a gynecologist oncologist who's fabulous. And my plastic surgeon who is ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, going over the muscle. But there is no mental health professional that I was given that really knew what I was going through. 
Um, so I had to sort of advocate for that myself. Um, it was very expensive, especially when I was uh, first going through surgical menopause. Um, you know, it's it's a, a crazy ride and um, your hormones get crazy and and, you know, even just the anxiety that comes with all the testing. Um, so what I started out to do was really advocate for mental health support to be more prevalent in um, our healthcare system, which, you know, everybody's doing and, and specifically in, you know, hospitals and uh, in medical treatment that are seemingly, you know, physical based. Um, where I've been since then, I think when we first met uh, last June, I was, that was sort of what I was what I was saying, where I am now is I, I am advocating just for support, just how we can support uh, patients and even participants in clinical trials. And I think, you know, even taking mental health out of it, just, just support um, goes a really long way and, and empathy. Um, I am given a pregnancy test every time I go in for a surgery, which if you recall, I don't have any ovaries. You, you get, why, why would you? So, you know, the, the hospital, a lot of patients, they, it would be really terrible to, you know, put general anesthesia on someone who is pregnant. And there are a lot of people that maybe don't know if they're pregnant. Now I have a pretty good sense of humor get there at 6 a.m. and they say, you know, here, take a pregnancy test. And for me, it's it's not so jarring because everything was my decision. And I, you know, have my daughter. We were very clear on not having another one, but not everybody is that fortunate. So even that question can be so triggering and upsetting. And so it's little things like that that I am trying to improve or change, or at least bring to someone's attention. I don't think I'm going to change the way things are done, but if I can change the way in which, if I can add empathy to how they're executed um, and just the forethought of what we are doing, I think that that'll go a very long way to help people feel supported. For me, it's just somebody knowing what, what BRCA means when I go in and they say, you know, wow, you have, you know, so it's, they, they know that I have a lot of tests and um, just, just knowing, having empathy that I'm, there are a lot of unknowns and I'm going through a lot of, a lot of things, even though you can't see it as with any sort of invisible condition. Um, and so I'm sort of uh, working to um, help figure that out if I can. Uh, well, that, that's very good to hear that you're, you're, you're trying to change the, well, I don't want to call it the system because there are so many systems actually to change within healthcare, but uh, like bringing the attention to something that I agree is lacking. And I think last time you also mentioned like when you receive test results and it's a letter and there's no one to talk to about them. 
and all you can do, especially nowadays, is go on the internet and, and search those results and start worrying that the worst you read about is what you have. Um, it really means that we need to be better at that. Uh, we need to have, I agree, some sort of support, some sort of explanation Um because there's so many things we can read now that you don't know who they've been written by. Uh, they might have been written with the best intention, but may not like will not apply to everyone. You may have specific conditions that mean that they really don't apply to you, but you don't know about that. Um, so yeah, I agree. We need we need much more support, empathy, and also be mindful of what people have, have have gone through already where they come from we did such a wonderful pivot during covid that um enabled us to really utilize um you know technology in a way that that really sort of propelled everything forward and you know really telehealth really took off in a way that it hadn't before and I definitely reap a lot of the benefits of that. But I think what's also been done is that we've sort of distanced patients from not only their providers, but also other patients. It's not great to be waiting in a waiting room forever, but if you're in the waiting room filling out a piece of paper and you have a question, there's people all around. Mm -hmm. If you're at home, you feel very isolated. You think, is this question am I going to be a burden? Is this question too much? Am I, you know, you're overthinking how to get in touch because it's not that easy to get in touch with your doctor. Yeah. I, um, I've had a couple of times where I've gotten test results and one, uh, when I got my abdominal MRI for my pancreas, they had found two liver lesions, which is a really scary thing to open up and see on your mobile device. I was actually on my way. I'm also a a performer, I was on my way to sing on stage and I opened up and said, oh, you know, I haven't gotten the results from my, you know, the, the MRI that was supposed to check my pancreas. Mm. I opened up and said, two liver lesions were found. Please follow up, blah, blah, blah. And nobody called me. I couldn't reach anyone. And, uh, you know, it was written exactly like you said. It, it was written not for me, it was, you know, the write-up of from the radiologist. I'm yeah. Googling things. I didn't, you know, and a lot of the terms they they use, you know, had some sort of anomaly, like my my spleen or my gallbladder. It was a an anomaly and which had no bearing on anything, but you know, you don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. Um one of the craziest things that happened to me was um I recently got uh they had I, I like to I have a wonderful relationship with my um, one of my providers, and I sort of like to test things um, when I have when I have thoughts. I had a thought the other day that um, you know they haven't offered me an STD or STI test since I was pregnant. I'm married. I'm very happily married, mm -hmm. and but you know it's 2022, and you know you never know um, or 2023 rather. Um, and so I went in and I said, you know, I'm going to see how my provider reacts. If I say, you know, can I, can I get an, an STD panel? And she's wonderful. She said, oh, are, is everything okay? Are you having symptoms of anything? Is everything okay? And that it wasn't judgmental. It was just, that's, that's the reaction. 
And I said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm fine. I just, when did we stop asking people? And now if I ask myself, I'm worried about, you know, my provider's reaction. What if we just, you know, put it on a piece of paper that people can sign, you know, they're taking blood work anyway. Um, so I did that. Now that's happening, which is great. And I got the results back in my, um, electronic medical record, which I have a love-hate relationship with. I love the information at my fingertips, um, yeah. but I also, I think we all sort of do, um, especially since it's it's not, you know, with we walk around with it in our pocket, you know, you don't sit down at your desk and say, okay, I'm going to check, you know, like those big scenes when you would check um, if you got into a school and the whole family would be crowded around the computer when you, you know, click the button, that's, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, you're not in that, that mind zone. You just. Yeah. Or you, or you receive a letter and you put it on the side until you're ready to open it. Right. Yeah. You're, you know, you're, you're in between, you're walking and you see the, the thing. So anyway, um, it said uh, under, you know, hepatitis B, it said hep B A G. uh non-reactive, standard value, HEP BAB, reactive, non-standard, and a big red exclamation point right next to it. And then it said HEP BAB levels, you know, high, big, big exclamation point, abnormal. Now, I don't know if I would have known this before COVID, mm -hmm. um, but I do know that AG means antigen and AB means antibody. So I figured, okay, the AG is negative. So that means I don't have it. And the AB is antibodies. So I have antibodies. Isn't that what it should be? Didn't I get a vaccine that, that it should be? And wouldn't the vaccine make the levels higher? Yes, that's exactly what it is. But it doesn't say that. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And so, you know, I, it looks like I'm getting this really terrifying health diagnosis that imagine, you know, if you think about worst case scenarios, if you think almost like dominoes and you think, okay, what if I, you know, called my mom and told her and my mom freaked out? What if I called, you know, all my, all my exes? What if I called my husband and accused him of something or, you know, confessed something, you know, how many, just that little, we don't think about that. And, you know, that's, that's, what I would love to see change just, you know, so we have the information for what we're receiving. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not, not just the raw data, but the explanation of the raw data. Yes. Well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I didn't I know. mean it in, in the yeah, bad way. It's but, right though. It's, it's never, I know, I know. I, I, I'll be, you know, my very last breath will be like, but the electronic medical record isn't <laughs> fixed yet. Yeah. Um, well, it's been great talking to you. Um, and I, I love uh, the fact that, that you're sharing your, your journey like this. And I hope it sets, uh, well, an example, but also like, makes others think um, the, the possibilities we have in the future with similar tests, hopefully. Um, before we, we, oh, I want to add one, one quick thing before the, yes, the yeah, middle, yeah. just to say, um, cause I would be remiss if I didn't that, um, a lot of people, I, I think that 
genetic testing is a wonderful tool. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people say, you know, I don't, I don't want to know, but you do want to know. You can change your story. You can, you know, I was able to save my own life. Um, what I do want to say is that the BRCA cancers or any genetic, if there is cancer, any, you know, prostate cancer, even on your dad's side, if there, you know, any kind of cancer can lead to it be caused by a genetic mutation. So if, you know, my dad had, had prostate cancer that could have been from the mutation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are only still testing because they're Ashkenazi or because there's ovarian cancer and breast cancer. But if there are other cancers, colon cancer, um, just, you know, know your history, be preventative. And if you can get a, get a genetic test, it's easier said than done. Um, but, uh, if you can, uh, you know, just, just do it. And remember, it's not, you know, it's not only women, it's not only, um, you know, those cancers. So just, um, just to raise awareness. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank there you. There are a lot of mutations. Too. Very good point. Um, so before we leave, I have one last question. Yes. Which I love asking people. What's your happy place where you find at peace? Uh, my happy place is in a theater, uh, either on stage, backstage, or in the audience. Um, and my happy moment is when there's an overture and the conductor raises his baton and his arms right before the music starts, either the overture or the first, the first note, and everybody is quiet. Everybody takes a breath together. That is my my happy, clear moment, and that just sets everything up for for the next, you know, whatever hours where I'm just lost and happy. That's that's my happy place. Wow, you've just transported me into the theater. Like really, I could feel myself waiting for these first notes so yeah, thank you yeah. I love that thank you <laughs> uh, and I love that you you added a, a happy moment to the happy place as well well thank you very much Emily uh, it's been lovely talking to you uh, as always uh, and I wish you best of luck for uh, what you're set to do in the future thank you so much thank you for having me oh thank you and thank you everyone for listening